Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. War is about taking territory. It's about planting flags. In East Ukraine, you have a situation where neither side actually wants this territory. There might be individuals, businessmen, whatever who do, but neither Moscow nor Kiev is particularly keen to have this bit of godforsaken countryside. You're listening to War College a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Does it feel like there's just too much information out there and you can't get a handle on it? Do you have trouble parsing the lies from the truth? Do you know all the places America's at war? Can we even technically call them wars? Are your Twitter followers even real, or are they just bots? Are Antifa and the Proud Boys rumbling in the streets a natural extension of electoral politics, or just street theater organized online? What if it's both? Are you tired all the time like me? The answers, or kind of answers, to some of these questions are at the heart of of a new book, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. Its author, Peter Pomerantsev, a senior fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics and a foreman Russian TV producer, is here with us today. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So in 2014, I read your first book, uh, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And at the time, I thought it was one of the most important books about the media landscape and the way we live now that I'd ever read. It focused on Russia and how the Kremlin had pioneered a new form of authoritarian control. Um, Things have uh, accelerated since then, I'd say. And a lot of what you wrote about in Nothing is True has spread across the world. Uh, And This is Not Propaganda kind of takes a global view on this issue. Um, What do you think has changed since you wrote that first book? Well, look, my first book was fixated on Russia. It was a memoir of my time in Russia. And actually, the book ends, I don't know if you remember, I come back to London. um, And um, I'm sort of going, well, thank God I've come back and everything here is going to be normal. And it it ends actually with, 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 you know, uh, the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine and its international propaganda. And but also kind of me sort of seeing little indications that what I saw in Russia spreading it across the world not just because it's caused by russia but because some sort of you know cultural cultural political zeitgeist and it actually ends uh, the first book with me going oh my word um is russia actually not just this you know little curiosity pickled in its own agonies and its own propaganda is it actually something that is a harbinger of the future and the first book ended on that and it was a genuine question um, and the second book really picks up. And, and my conclusion, if you want to spin right to the end of the book, is that 
yes, the future arrived first in Russia. And what, what do I mean by that? I mean, what we refer to rather casually and often annoyingly, but yet now quite universally as post-truth politics, i.e. a politics where politicians don't care if they're caught lying and actually revel in lying. Um, a politics where the idea of the future has disappeared and nasty nostalgias um, exist uh, instead and kind of where spectacle has pu- pushed out any kind of even attempts at rational sense. Uh, um, I think those are some of the key ingredients which which uh, I saw in Russia already uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s and now have spread everywhere. And, and with that kind of comes a, a propaganda approach that doesn't seem to convince people but just looks to confuse and undermine them and spread so much doubt that one ends up yearning for strongmen and kind of deliberative democracy in that kind of Greek way that we we aspired to quite recently, I think, has kind of disappeared as a possibility. Um, so without a doubt, I mean, I, I saw those things in Russian 2000s. In this book, I go back to the Russian 1990s and look at how they kind of developed then. And as you say, go around the world, the Philippines, Mexico, Europe, um, and even a little bit north america to sort of kind of do a kind of like show how you know these things are happening everywhere uh with national characteristics but but the kind of the underlying techniques and ideological crises are the same i even go to china and and find it a a kind of another example of 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 the same but with chinese characteristics one of the one of the themes i think that that's kind of recurs over and over again is the way that this new media landscape uh separates a person from their own reality. Can you speak to that? Yeah, look, to, to be honest, I think, I think that's always been a big part of, of, of propaganda and, and, and the cruelty of propaganda. Uh, but, but I think that's particularly so in the social media era and the internet era, because the promise of social media and of the internet was that A, you would connect people to each other. Uh, that's why it was so exciting. But also that we'd be able to kind of to understand ourselves. You know, uh, I, I speak to this, um, uh, this 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 fantastic sort of activist and Internet guru in Mexico. Uh, and his whole idea is like, you know, the Internet would allow us to kind of see the revolutionary reality just below the surface. And then he's got a whole technology of doing that by analyzing Google searches. We can tell what the true desires for change are in a society a bit like you know google can te- can tell in these sort of famous studies that they've done when there was a, a flu epidemic building in a certain area uh, by the way uh, uh, by the searches people were doing online they could tell a flu epidemic was building because people were asking questions that showed there were more and more cases of flu appearing in a very unnatural way so this guy he tries to look at sort of like you know, are people complaining about employment or the ecology and, and so on and so forth and really catch that way of the desire for social and political change before it's kind of been formulated into an idea and, and help to encourage very open engagement around it. So, you know, what what a lot of the new propaganda about is, A, splitting people up, yeah? So so there's a wonderful study by Harvard people of propaganda, online propaganda in China, showing that it's not so much fixated on crushing all opinion, you know, not necessarily. It's much more concerned with as soon as they see people organized to split them up. In Russia, the Kremlin, through 2011-12, kind of flooded the internet with so much disinformation, people couldn't organize anymore. It was all about partitioning and breaking people up. But also, by you know, 
creating these bots and trolls and gaming SEOs and so on and so forth, um, kind of putting up so much um, uh, uh, putting so much noise in between people and their actual desires uh, online, how they're expressed online, that people can't tell uh, what they want anymore. I mean, sorry, that sounds a very wordy, long-winded way of saying it, but essentially Mexico, which is the case study I take, using so many bots and trolls that, that, that it sort of drowns out um, the actual social desires that people are expressing online with a lot of chaos and disinformation. Was, was that okay? Does that make sense? I don't know. You tell me. No, I think it makes sense. It's actually very, it's very clearly expressed in the book. Um, I'm, I'm sorry if I got a bit lost there. No, I think that's, I think that's clearly expressed. I think uh, you're kind of making the point that we've built a world where we, we, we interact with identity, with our politics and with each other through these filters, not really understanding that, uh, that there are other people with other agendas in control of those filters, or at least shifting them, right? TV always did that. You know, that was always part of TV. You create a fake, fake reality, you know, uh, uh, and that then, and, and, you know, there's a lot of studies about this. People will see that. And if they think that the reality on TV is, is the dominant reality, then it will kind of, they will, they will change their behavior to adapt to it and fit in with it. So something called this spiral of silence, which is a very important sort of study of how people's relationship with with uh with with kind of with um uh, with broadcasting and, and mass media which is why we always try to have a plurality of media that was the idea we have lots of different media so you know and in those clashes and conversations some sort of real you know the chance of a real reality the chance of a genuine reality emerges you know while in authoritarian regimes you had complete domination of the media sphere and people adjusted their behavior to fit in with the reality that was broadcast to them um so, so the internet was meant to be this breakthrough. That was the thing. The internet was meant to sort of like release all the all the unsaid things in democracy, but in authoritarian regimes, it's to lock down the fake kind of oppression of reality, uh, the fake pseudo reality of, of oppressive regimes, authoritarian regimes, and you know, we, you know, people were able to express themselves genuinely. But basically, regimes have adapted by using the techniques of troll farms uh bots uh gaming the search algorithms they're again able to um sort of instill uh, a kind of a designed reality onto people which people then start to fit themselves into there's a great study by the oxford internet institutes which basically says look it's not as if like one bot or one troll changes people's minds that's not how it works yeah, no one's ever been conf- uh, convinced by one troll or one bot it's, but when you s- spread a whole inauthentic reality through the mass use of uh, inauthentic campaigns, people start thinking that that's the dominant point of view out there and start adapting their behavior towards it. Um, that's kind of what, I, what I'm trying to get at. Well, the authoritarian regimes also learned from the protest movements that were fighting them, correct? Exactly. I mean, especially with the Internet, uh, because, you know, uh, whether it's the Arabs spring or gezi park or there's this wave of internet powered protests across the world which first really alarmed authoritarian leaders and then they're like okay we can game this and then you know we can kind of crawl inside it and start manipulating it as well but i don't want people to think the book is all about technology there is you know the book starts off with technology and very quickly gets into kind of bigger ideas because i i don't think technology is very important and the relationship between technology and ideology and narratives is very interesting to what extent, you know, does the nature of the technology change, you know, the ideological model? 
but but this is also a book about storytelling and ideas. Um, and and when it comes, you know, the, the sort of the story of, of revolution, uh, it's really the storytelling of revolution that's been hacked, uh, which is what I explore extensively in the book. So the the the, the forces, whether it's the Kremlin or far right forces that were kind of made vulnerable by the narrative of revolt and freedom and revolution that really dominated post-1989 have managed to use that language and that storytelling for their own ends. Right. I think that's the part of what you do in the book that makes that work and brings that to the forefront is the beginning of every chapter is is memoir, right? You're telling the story of your own family as dissidents in the Soviet Union. Exactly. So the book is... Um, uh, the, book, the, the book is actually built as a, a um, dare I say, a fugue, um, uh, which actually happened because as I was putting together the concept of the book, I was getting my kids to sleep every night by listening to a lot of Philip Glass, really good for getting kids to sleep. And it kind of the Philip Glass crawled into my head. He's a, he's a modern composer, for those who don't know, who, who writes fugues. And, and, and I was like, OK, I want to really play with the past and present in this book, because this is a book about um, ideas of the future and ideas of kind of coherent sense of history breaking down. And so, as you say, the book is exactly 20% memoir, or almost 20% memoir. I, I was quite strict on not overdoing it. But I tell the story of my parents who were dissidents uh, in, in, in the Soviet era um, and their fight for freedom. They were arrested by the KGB for reading books. And my father was a very sort of freedom-loving type of poets and artists and their work for the bbc and then radio free europe during the cold war but really kind of you know expressing these sort of very classical ideas of, of freedom and revolt against totalitarianism that, that was so important in the 20th century and showing how all these ideas have been hacked and changed but in the book the memoir then seeps into the future because my parents are still very much alive and working and so at the end i hope to give some hope by showing how you know both they're still going and then they're transforming their ideas to battle the authoritarianisms of the future. Um, I don't know if that came off. That was meant to be the rhythm of the book, which is meant to be rewarding in itself. But I don't know. It's also a literary experiment. book. <laughs> I think you succeeded. Thank you. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite bits, one of my favorite memoir bits uh, is the beginning of Soft Facts, uh, which is a little bit later in the book. When you talk about uh, this is when your father's working at the BBC. Um but I believe it's your mother or it, this, it kind of highlights these other kinds of uh, I, I hesitate to call it authoritarian control because that's not really what it is. Um, but your parents, when they come to the West, begin pushing up against these other kinds of, of these other kinds of control things, specifically of your mother being told that her views as a Soviet dissident are biased. Uh, can you speak to that and like how that what how that reflects today or what the point of that is today? That was a poorly worded question, but no, 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 no. Look, very well noticed because that's one of the little things that I, I, I try to do is is drop in these little details of life, which you know reflect these huge debates about public opinion and propaganda as a part of public opinion. Um, so yes, yeah, so this is a whole chapter which is about the idea of. Is objectivity possible? Yeah, I, you know, in the present, you know, I talk about things like Fox News or Russian propaganda, which basically argue for a kind of wild relativism that, you know, everything is biased. There's no such thing as objectivity. There's actually no such thing as facts, which I think is the larger kind of cultural background that makes a Trump or a Putin possible. Um, but then I go back to the 20th century where, you know, my father's worked at the BBC World Service, which is, you know, 
wins the media cold war by by insisting on facts. I talk about Chernobyl as this moment where everyone in the Soviet Union listened to the BBC World Service because they needed the facts about what was going on. But I already show how in that period in the 20th century, in the, in the 80s, already you have this kind of you know, incipient, uh, the beginnings of, of, a, of a narrative that will later say that, oh, everyone's biased, so therefore there are no facts and there is no objectivity or accuracy to, for a BBC to cleave to. And it's a little scene when she, she comes that she told me about her colleagues at London University who are nice, but, but generally very leftist. Uh, as academics tend to be. And, and they say, well, well, Lena, you can't be objective about the USSR because uh, uh, you're a dissident. So you're biased. And she says, no, 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 I was a dissident because the objective nature of the USSR, um, which, you know, repressed freedoms. And, and it's just a little note. Uh, but, you know, I could show how, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, that 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 has grown into, you know, that sense that everyone's biased. Uh, or there is no objectivity out there, um, has been completely taken over and hacked and is now misused by by very aligned political forces. Yeah, I remember the, the exact moment I knew that we were truly in trouble and living very much in the world of your book that you described in your first book. After uh, the Republican National Convention, Trump gave this you know law and order, America's in trouble speech. They were interviewing Newt Gingrich afterwards, and they were pressing him, you know, like, crime rates are down. Uh, what's going on here? And he said, well, you have your set of facts, and we have our set of facts. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> um, so it's interesting you mentioned Newt, because I, 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 I had to listen to a lot of Fox News for this, especially Sean Hannity, who I find fascinating. And Newt is often on Hannity's radio show and on his TV show, and I've heard him say that quite a lot. He, he really speaks like a really uh, a really bad undergraduate who's just come across postmodernism and using what i think rules called bad relativity you know there is actually a concept in in philosophy about good relativity which takes in other people's points of view and bad relativity which basically says oh well that there is no truth um and it's, it's absolutely stunning i mean this is certainly a man who we would expect reflected a in a conservative ideology, which insisted on the primacy of enlightenment values, but not anymore. Well, there's an idea that Newt himself was ground zero for a lot of this stuff in American politics, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, I want to talk about some of the specific places that you visited and what you saw there. Uh, can we talk about Estonia? And can you tell me about why statues are important in Estonia, an important part of this discussion? Okay, so, um, you know, Estonia is one of the places that we saw um, the Kremlin's use of, again, we don't know what to call it, hybrid war. I don't really like that. Um, the Kremlin's use of very, very aggressive uh, ways of messing with other countries without quite invading them, whatever you want to call the play out. And that was, this is, I think, 2007, 2008. You're going to have to, you're going to have to double check in the book. Sorry, I'm going to get a date wrong. Uh, but, um Essentially, um, there was a statue in Estonia um, celebrating um, a Soviet soldier in World War Two, which after, you know, a, a lot of stupidity, actually, from Estonian nationalists who said this has to be removed uh, and quite, you know, genuinely provocative behavior from them. And then maybe a very rash decision by the government of the time to move it. Uh, you know, the Russians always capitalize on stupidity and polarization that exists. But in any case, once it's moved, you have a a mixture of 
kind of riots by ethnic Russians who are in contact with the Russian embassy, but more important, like a massive media assault onto Estonia, all looking to fuel polarization, saying that Estonia sort of ethnic Russians have been attacked in Estonia by mobs, that somebody's been killed, all of this utter nonsense, uh, sort of fueling the sense that Estonian fascists are uh, attacking the poor ethnic Russians who are protesting against the removal of the statue. Um, so you've got riots, you've got media attack based on kind of what we would now call, or we shouldn't call, but let's call it fake news. And um, most importantly, uh, a massive kind of internet attack, a DDoS attack, which incapacitates Estonia's banking system, parliament, and major media. So basically, they take out Estonia for a day. Again, you can't even prove who did this, because apparently it's patriotic hackers from Russia who are just doing this, you know, out of uh, out of their sense of patriotic duty. I mean, the government says it's got nothing to do with us. So again, that deniability, all these factors that afterwards we saw in Ukraine, to a certain extent in America and in other countries, played out in Estonia much, much, much earlier. And it's a real kind of foretaste of things to come. Uh, so that's the technical side. But also, I think there we have a foretaste of the Kremlin doing something else, which is it's basically saying, look, you guys have your colour revolution. Well, we're going to do this now. You know, this is our version. There is actually it's the same. Your colour revolution are stirring a bit of discontent in Estonia. You do it. We do it. There's no difference, um, especially because Estonia is also the place where, you know, where a lot of the street protests that led to 1989 and, and the overthrow of the Soviet Union also took place. So, again, I, I use that as a small example of the Kremlin tapping into, um, you know, the, the sort of like the street language and the associations you have with street protests and saying, well, two sides can play it uh, at this game. Street protests don't necessarily have to be pro-democracy. They can be pro-authoritarian. Um, they, we saw that much more in Ukraine. So when the Ukrainian Maidan happens... The Russian-backed forces, but essentially run by the Russians, not Russian-backed, Russian-run proxy forces in Ukraine, start doing their own kind of uh, revolutionary protests uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, so, well, you know, there's there's big protests in Kiev. Well, we're going to have our own ones here. They even use the same kind of uh, visual imagery. We're putting tires everywhere. And they call it the Russian Spring, which is a invocation of the Prague Spring, the great you know uh, uh, demonstrations in 19... 19- 68 in Czechoslovakia against Soviet rules. They're constantly using the language of protests uh, and the visual, uh, the visual language of protests in order to kind of say, well, you know, protests don't necessarily mean democracy and prosperity. They can mean something else entirely. And that eats away uh, at our sense that, you know, street protests are part of an inevitable historical process towards ever more democracy everywhere. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
you just lighted on something else that I thought was a really interesting theme of the book. Uh, maybe not a theme, but something that you said kind of at this point. There's this this idea of Russian hybrid war or whatever you want to call it, however you want to define the thing that they're doing. Um, once you do define it, or if you accept that they're doing it, you are accepting it on their terms, and you are kind of trapped by the way that they frame it. And that can be dangerous in and of itself, right? Yeah, I mean, what I look at specific. So firstly, let's talk about framing. Yeah, when we're talking about information and language, you know, we have to be very careful. Information language, you don't win and lose in it by kind of, you know, shooting words like bullets to shoot the other person with, you know, which is somehow sometimes the language will get caught in when we talk about what's become known as information war. We, you win it. I mean, there's been so much study on this in the, you know, in the field of media facts for decades now. You win it by agenda setting, getting the other side to talk about what you want to talk about, and by framing the issue in such a way that imposes a logic that leads to the result that you want. So information war, and I talk about information war specifically uh, in the book, which is you know something, a term we've started to think and talk about a lot since since sort of Russian malign foreign activity has been discovered, uh, we started using the words information war a lot. And, and that is actually much more than a series of techniques yeah, that Russia uses. In Russia, information war, and they have a whole kind of like, you know, body of pseudo-experts who talk about this, is a whole philosophy. It basically says the Soviet Union lost the Cold War not because it had rubbish policies and terrible human rights, but because of information war from the West. Information virus planted by the West, like Perestroika and Glasnost, et away at the Soviet Union and, and destroyed it. And nowadays, everything we see in the world, colour revolutions, you know, for all sorts of things, uh, 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 the promotion of democracy, the spread of kind of like uh, international news, these are all parts of information war. These are Nothing has any values in information war. Nothing has any sort of sense of history or ideals or norms or rights. Everything is mere manipulation, Yeah. The whole world is a manipulative space. And the problem is when we think about the world in terms of information war, we start to buy in to this Russian worldview. Um, And the Russian worldview actually has a policy aim because the Russians have a whole idea. If the whole world is information war, then it's going to be then we need information sovereignty and censorship to stop it. It's a way excusing censorship yeah so we're breaking uh, a world of less borders and less frontier which was the ideal of 1989 so there's a real danger that as we completely correctly recognize russia's malign activity as we completely correctly um think about policies to deal with it we can actually slip into thinking about it in the logic that they want yeah so a just a cultural sense that everything is manipulation everything is information war and i think we're ready and then we don't listen to the other side we don't try to argue with the other side we don't try to win arguments we just you know we're constantly kind of in this paranoid stance of 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 non-stop um non-stop psychological conflict uh, but even more importantly we start to develop policies that actually strengthen that so we see that i think already in the west with um you know you have sort of uh, firstly you have kind of very very you know uh cheeky sort of quasi-authoritarians in the Balkans, for example saying oh well we've got to like you know we've got to shut down the independent press here because you know there might be part of russia's information war 
So they're just like abusing the situation. But even healthy democracies like Germany, like France, start talking about imposing censorship on Internet content as a way to approach this, which I think is completely the wrong policy solution and actually one that plays into Russia's worldview and makes information into something dangerous that we have to defend ourselves from. And it becomes, you know, we're basically saying that censorship is normalized, which, again, is the opposite of what, you know, Russian Democrats want. Um, I do think that's a clever way of doing regulation. Uh, I do think we need regulation in this space. Uh, but I don't think censorship is the way forward at all. So, so you kind of, uh, another track I wanted to go down. Uh, it's this idea of ideology first and then shape the world around that, right? That's kind of what Russia's doing, yes? Well, that's, that's what, when they talk about information war, they say all ideologies are just excuses to do something. So very basically, they say, look, freedom of expression, the Americans don't believe in it. They just use that as a way to impose regime change in other countries or human rights. So basically they're saying, look, it doesn't, you know, what comes first is a military aim, yeah, an aim to a political aim. And then you, you magic up any ideology you need to make that possible. So even in, in terms of Russia having a, uh, it is the, Fences for information warfare, they're like, okay, we've got to create an ideology that gives us an excuse to impose sense. It's, it's everything, you know, information precedes essence. First, you have a military aim and information or a political warfare aim, and then you like, you chuck some ideology on top to, to, to give that shape. Um, and look, they get me wrong. You know, there are times when America has been very, very hypocritical in its use of human rights discourse and freedom of expression discourse. Um, but that doesn't mean that those values aren't there and thereabouts. Um, and then, you know, the fact that we even say the U.S. has been hypocritical already shows that there's something to be hypocritical vis-a-vis. So, you know, there are some values there somewhere that we can at least appeal to. Uh, in the Russian version, there aren't even any values to appeal to. Regulation is a small part of the solution to these very important problems. I don't know if regulation is going to be the thing that's going to come and help us. Uh, I think it's one of the four. I think it's one of the small. I think in, in we talk about propaganda, information, and political speech. Regulation is never going to play a big part unless you're kind of a dictator, uh, and even they struggle to cope with that. Uh, but I do think there are the regulation itself can be a piece of storytelling. You know, um, so the regulation I think we need is to make a much more transparent internet where we have much we have to understand how the information environment is being shaped. So I think it's our right to know whether something is a bot or not a bot. I'm not saying anonymity. Anonymity is very necessary and a democratic right. But I, as a user of the internet, should be able to understand why algorithms have chosen one piece to show me one piece of information, not another. Whether I'm seeing something online as part of a campaign or it's organic, which bit of my data has been used. I mean, the internet has to become interpretable. And that's also a piece of political storytelling because that says, look, in democracies, this is how, this is the sort of information space we have. It's one where the user has a right to understand everything about how it's shaped. While in authoritarian regimes, that's never going to happen. You know, the Kremlin and the Chinese want to keep their information space as a black box. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of very important storytelling to do around um, the information space and regulating it. However, I agree that all that will do is help even the field to give, you know, to give the ordinary citizen at least a fighting chance of survival. It won't win anything. I mean, you know, people might still choose to follow, you know, Russian propaganda or Nazi propaganda. I mean, it won't mean that the forces of uh, liberal democracy have won. 
I want to talk about how, I mean, this is a war show, ostensibly. I want to talk about how war has changed, how this has all altered the way conflict looks. And I think in your book, it's most apparent in your chapter about Ukraine. What did you see there? Yeah. Well, Ukraine, I think, is so important to understand because it's really a place where a lot of things we've talked about are, are crystallized. Uh, it's also very important for me personally in the book because my parents are from Ukraine and I end up almost going back to the places where my father was arrested in Odessa in the 70s and, and, uh, and seeing the new war there now. So he fought, fought in a cold war while today we have this information war. Um, but I also go right to the front lines. Uh, and I spent some time with the army. And um, it's a very, very strange thing when you're there because at the end of the day, I think, I guess, Maybe war experts know better. But for me, who just did a bit of, you know, war in, in school and university, war is about taking territory. It's about planting flags. In East Ukraine, you have a situation where neither side actually wants this territory. There might be individuals, businessmen, whatever who do, but neither Moscow nor Kiev is particularly keen to have this bit of godforsaken countryside. But... Neither can they give it away, because if they give it away, that's made them look bad in certain ways. And also that, you know, they need, you know, they, they need it for various you know, political gains. So you have this conflict where, where the information effect for both sides is far more important than the territorial effect. Um, and the storytelling that's done and the, sort of the people on the ground, the soldiers on the ground, they use this kind of like actors in a piece of storytelling all the time. Um, so that's very, very, very strange. It's a bit as if the information effect is far more important than the, than the physical effect. Um, and, and that's very weird. And the soldiers there are very aware of it. They're very aware that they're involved in it. They're actually part of an information war, uh, or a war where, where the information is more important than, than the physical tanks. Um, uh, and that's just very strange. It's very unusual. Um, uh, it was to me anyway, and I think it was to the soldiers as well. No, I, I brought it up because it's it's kind of – we just talked to Robert Young Pelton who gotten back from Libya, uh, and he described a very similar situation there, the civil war in Libya, where it is – a lot of it is theater, and he called it the future of war. Um, well, I think the future of war came to Ukraine first. I think that's what you're – I think that's what you saw. Um you know, America's been in Afghanistan for almost two decades, and at this point, the con- it's not it's not about taking and holding territory. Like, what are the objectives here? Things have changed completely, uh, and I think about um, the the famous Clausewitz line: "War is a continuation of politics by other means." And I wonder what this version of war says about our politics now. Oh, that's a great question. But let's go deeper into what each side is trying to do in, in Ukraine and but, but in, in East Ukraine. And by the way, I don't want to draw any kind of equivalence. I mean, there's only one guilty party in, in, in this war, and that's that's Russia. But basically, the Russians, the storytelling the Russians need to show in East Ukraine is that your desire or the desire for democracy leads to pain, blood and horror. Yeah, they need to sh- break you know, that montage, that editing association that we had in our heads from 1989, that crowds out on the street as they were in Maidan, you know, in, in Kiev in 2014, lead to democracy and prosperity. They need to instill, you know, an editing cut that says, look, they went for democracy. 
Yeah, they they overthrew their their kleptocratic authoritarian government. And what do you get? You get blood and horror. It's not even about Russia invading. It's about blood and horror. It's that it's that line. Well, the Ukrainians need to show that if you welcome in Russian proxy forces, if you welcome in Russia, you won't get a nice time either. You won't get kind of Crimea and and kind of embracement from Russia. You will also get discomfort, yeah, and pain. So, so both of them are trying to show that's 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 the narrative both need to show, and that's the narrative that they need enough on the ground evidence to create enough shots to exemplify that. Uh, neither wants to take Lobachevo, which is like, you know, this godforsaken village that I went to where like, you know, which is in the center of this conflict and neither side wants this village at all. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's so, so, so what, so we're in a world where the narrative, where the storytelling is more important than kind of the evidence, you know, is, is, is that what it tells us about our politics that, that, that are, we're in a world where I'm thinking out loud now. We're in a world where narratives are constantly being improvised, or you could take the same facts on the ground and show completely different narratives. Maybe that's the point. That's the world we're in. I mean, that's that certainly relates to sort of like you know the one one way to explain Trump's you know word salad is that by saying so many different things, people just say take what they want from it and create their own narrative out of it. I mean, that's what we keep on seeing online. You know, it happens over and over and over again. Uh, whether it's the, you know, the, the Brett Kavanaugh, um, uh, nomination or what we have now in, in Britain over Brexit, we kind of have the same set of facts on the ground and people will just create completely different stories out of them and you kind of see it happening in real time. Is that, is that the big lesson? Everything, reality is up for grabs. But, you know, whatever the facts are, the evidence is, it's all about magicking up, um, quick stories out of it. Isn't that playing into the Kremlin's postmodern nihilistic view of the world and of reality, though? Well, I mean, the horrible thing that I, I say in the book is that the Kremlin might have caught the zeitgeist. I'm not saying that it's good or bad, that they, they just got it. And in my book, I argue uh, that the paradox is that by losing the Cold War, by being the place for kind of all the old kind of like Enlightenment style stories, whether it's communism, which for all its perversities was based, meant to be based in objective scientific fact, uh, and democratic capitalism, which was imbued with enlightenment thinking. Because both these stories collapsed first in Russia, communism in 91, and then by 93, people have lost faith in democratic capitalism. It becomes this kind of like, you know, uh, this kind of vacuum space where a new type of politics emerges, which you know, politics has always been about storytelling, but here it's just about emotion storytelling without any need for evidence or, or kind of like, you know, evidence and, and, and rational discourse anymore. And so the Russians are just quite good at it uh, because they've been developing propaganda strategies since the sort of mid 90s to deal with this new unreality. Uh, and I show that in quite a lot of sort of granularity in the book showing how the propaganda strategies used by Russian spin doctors in 96 and 99 kind of anticipate Brexit and Trump by several decades. We've kind of arrived at, at, at the same place. I mean, where are the consensuses about, you know, rational theories of social and economic progress have whittled away, partly because the financial crash, partly maybe because, you know, you can only impose that consensus on rational, a rational style reality with a limited amount of media, partly because of, you know, various foreign policy adventures that went wrong. 
but whatever it, enough people are now in that kind of nihilistic place where, where russians are where they see no you know no enlightenment style version of the future that 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 has any worth to them um so russia caught the tight guys uh it kind of admitted this new reality and, and managed to cope with it first and in the book i think that our challenge is, is to in the space i write about which is the information space is how do we deal with this how do we start generating discourses in an information space where facts start mattering again yeah it's up to us to sort of do something with this sort of uh uh with this kind of completely liquid swirling period where everything is constantly up for grabs we have to start building that reality again uh building that shared reality uh again so so that's the challenge we face um so the russians got to the type first um and and that's why they're quite good at it i mean this russia is a declining power uh with massive social and economic problems just somehow managed to tap into the information game so well they seem like you know you know, they, 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 they seem like these titans again. You know, they've managed to accrue great power status just through, you know, very, very targeted use of real power in Syria uh, and Ukraine, but also but largely through, through information. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. The book is This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality by Peter Pomerantsev. That's it for this week on War College. Thank you for listening. As always, War College is me, Matthew Galt, and producer Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields, who had a beautiful wedding. If you like the show, please remember to like, subscribe, do all the things that you know to do. Send us a comment on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. We are available wherever fine pods are casted, and we will be back next week. Stay safe until then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.